You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Welcome, everybody, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, especially happy to welcome those who came from West Seattle and other places downtown. I've heard many reports of awful traffic tonight. Um, we should start these events later, maybe, so we'll, we'll take that with us. Uh, but nevertheless, you all made it, and those who didn't aren't here right now. Um, I will welcome you to this event. My name is Sabine Lang. I'm the director of the Center of West European Studies here at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies of the University of Washington. And uh, I am so happy, um, not just because you're here, but honestly also very happy since about 2 p.m. Miami time on Sunday afternoon when a lot of us at a conference were sitting in the lobby and staring at CNN until we got the result of the second round of these uh, French presidential, of the presidential elections. Um, I don't think I have to go into much detail. My colleagues will provide that for you in a second, into much detail about what this election really meant uh, when we started thinking about doing this event tonight, we really thought that this would be a deal breaker for Europe and for the European Union. And um, I'm still holding that line. You can convince me if that wouldn't be the case. But we're very happy that uh, we have the youngest president since Napoleon um, in France as of Sunday. We have somebody who defies a lot of gender stereotypes about older men marrying young women. We also have somebody who is in many ways very unpredictable. And uh, here I'm turning uh, my, my political science genes on. I, I think we, ha we are having somebody coming in who really defies the old party system, who has drawn from the left, from the right, uh, his selection of prime minister that we know as of today, a conservative um, a member of the Republican Party, other people that he's drawing from the left. So we are entering a fascinating, unpredictable terrain here with uh, Emmanuel Macron, but I think many of us are ready to follow him and to see what these next uh, five years bring. A lot will hinge, of course, on the elections of the National Assembly this coming June, but I also think we'll hear more about that from my very distinguished colleagues uh, who have agreed to spend their evening with us tonight. I'm very happy to introduce to you in the order of how I see them here, Frank Wendler, my colleague, Professor Frank Wendler, who is our German Academic Exchange Fellow here at the Jackson School and is a political scientist by training and has just recently published, published a book on the perception of the EU in national parliaments. Um, 
Frank will not start us off. The person who will start us off sits next to him in the middle, which is Professor Richard Watts. He is the chair of our French and Italian department. Um, is very much involved in Francophone literature from what I saw in your website and in uh, water. So I think you're doing quite a bit of research on how water is um, addressed in literature and culture uh, as it pertains to the environment and what we can learn from that. So thanks for being with us. Richard will start us off with a view on France more proper, then Frank Rendler will go into German-French relationships and nation-state relationships and will tell us a little bit about what right-wing populism will not do to us in the next four or five years, hopefully. And then we have our last speaker, our very much cherished EU fellow. Uh, the European Union is kind enough to send us amazing people here to the University of Washington who spend six months to a year. Ernesto Peñaslado has been with us since last September, I think, um, and is an expert on fisheries from the European Commission. But he's not sitting here because of fisheries, he's sitting here because he has in this, the past nine months, uh, given us an amazing array of insight into European affairs proper from the perspective of the Commission. And so we will get his take on what this French election means for Europe and how the European Union has looked upon these elections. Uh, we've given each of these um, presenters 12 minutes and they frown, so maybe you'll get a few minutes more, but not many more. Um, before Rich will get us started, I would like to um, give a lot of thanks to many people in this room who I won't name by name, uh, but you know who you are. Um, we have support from the Jackson School here in this room. We have support from the Center for West European Studies, from the EU Center, from French Italian, and from many, many friends of Europe who I also want to grow. So whoever is not on our Friends of Europe list, please come to me or Andrea or Tess after the lecture and we'll put you on this list. So without further ado, let's welcome our three speakers and Rich is first. So I want to begin by thanking uh, Sabina Long, the Center for West European Studies, the Jackson School, all the, the usual suspects for putting together this event. And I'm, I'm gratified and both a little concerned to see so many people here. And, and so the, obviously gratified because you take an interest in French politics in relation to the European Union. Um, a little concerned because this election in particular seems to have solicited an awful lot of interest, which means that people are very concerned by implication, the stakes are extraordinarily high. Um, and so it's, it's in that context that I want to make a few brief remarks about two very different aspects of this, um, of this election. So I, I thought that it might be useful first to talk about uh, the, the echoes of this election in France, in particular in France proper, as Sabina Lang put it, 
especially in relation to the parliamentary elections that are coming up shortly. And by the way, I don't have a political science gene, so this is, these are the remarks of a literary and cultural scholar on parliamentary elections, so you know you just have to, that's my disclaimer. Um, and then maybe spend a few minutes talking about something that I, I know a little bit more about, which is the particular intellectual milieu out of which uh, Emmanuel Macron emerges, and what, if anything, that might tell us about the way he uh, will govern. So first, political ramifications. Um, as you all know, the legislative elections that follow the presidential elections will take place in just a few weeks. Uh, the first round on the 11th of June, the second round on the 18th of June. And I, I recall just days before the election when pollsters could still talk in uh, French media before the, the two-day embargo on any sort of polling data or anything of that sort, that um, if Emmanuel Macron were to beat Marine Le Pen by a score of 65% or greater, they'd be a very good chance of being able to constitute a parliamentary majority. So a, a lot of this is very uh, impressionistic. You might even say alchemical, right? That there's a, a sort of occult science to determining what kind of results in a presidential election will produce a particular kind of result in the following, in the subsequent legislative election. But this is election, an election in the Fifth Republic unlike any other, right? And everyone knows why it's an election unlike any other, because neither of the two traditional parties that have held power in the Fifth Republic were present in the second round of the election. Neither the Parti Socialiste nor Les Républicains. Right? And these are the, the traditional governing center-left and center-right parties. Um, so this complicates the math for Emmanuel Macron to constitute a parliamentary majority. Um, so it's in this context that we have uh, breaking news regarding the legislative elections in France. Uh, it broke a few hours ago. That is the naming of a prime minister. And the prime minister who's named by Emmanuel Macron is somebody whom I will admit I had never heard of before today, and I actually think that's part of the idea. Uh, his name is Edouard Philippe. He is the mayor of Le Havre, which is a medium-sized city in uh, the north of France. He is most notably in, this, in the context of understanding these legislative elections, um, a, a member of Les Républicains, so he's a center-right politician. Uh, note that Macron, of course, came out of Le Parti Socialiste, right? So this is already a sort of crossing of, of political boundaries that is um, unusual, to say the least. He is a close political ally of Alain Juppé, as I learned just this afternoon, because again, I didn't know anything about Edouard Philippe before today. Uh, and Alain Juppé was prime minister under Jacques Chirac, he is really the standard bearer of the moderate right in France, of sort of center-right um, positioning. So there's that, right? I mean, this, this is an attempt on Macron's part, um, having already harnessed much of the energy of the center-left, of the Parti Socialiste, and you could say having completely vaporized the Parti Socialiste in the process, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. He's now harnessing some of the energy, that is to say, the votes of, uh, of the center-right by naming this, um, this prime minister, Edouard Philippe. So then what is the math on the parliamentary election? Uh, 
Parliament is made up of 577 députés. You need 289 to constitute a majority. If you can't constitute a majority, you end up with a situation that's been seen, I think, three times in the, the French Fifth Republic. That's called cohabitation. Uh, cohabitation, it's not as friendly as it sounds. It's like having a really bad roommate. Very, uh, a roommate who's constantly angry with you. And, um, and so there, there's every chance that, uh, that Macron will be able to avoid that fate and be able to govern with a majority in parliament for his five-year five -year term, but this is, this is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, so right now, the projections put the, uh, the number of seats in parliament that can be won by Macron's party, which he renamed after the election, so it's called La République en Marche uh, today, R-E-M, um, as opposed to En Marche during the presidential campaign, E-M, which happens to be Emmanuel Macron's own initials, and so led to uh, accusations of egocentrism and so on. So he decided that that should be modified um, and, and make it about not himself, but about, but about others. So current projections put uh, the number of seats that his party can gain in the parliamentary election at somewhere between 250 and 280, so clearly needs some more. With the appointment of a prime minister from the center-right, it seems quite likely at this point, given the immediate calls from members of the center-right to join Macron's movement, um, that he will be able to constitute a, um, a majority in parliament. And uh, there, there are a couple of uh, ancillary effects to this. So I mentioned before that, that Macron, by leaving the Socialist Party, by, by leaving a ministerial post in François Hollande's socialist government, uh, began the process of vaporizing the Socialist Party, which at this point, I mean, I just said that République en marche is likely to garner somewhere between 250 and 280 seats. The Parti Socialiste, which has, until most recently, um, a, a majority in parliament, is likely to get something on the order of 30 to 40 seats. I mean, it's just the absolute decimation of the Parti Socialiste. The, I think, wish for side benefit of appointing Edouard Philippe as prime minister in his government is the vaporization of the center-right. Um, I don't think it will happen to the same extent that it's happened with the Parti Socialiste, but this will lead to a fracturing of Les Républicains uh, and a, a complete transformation. And Sabina hinted at this. I mean, Macron aims to completely transform the political landscape is very shrewd in how he's going about it, is both uh, thoughtful and ruthless about how he, he does it, and has been, um, in fact, quite open about his tactics and has said, he backed off on this a little bit, but has said previously that he would not allow people running um, under the banner of his party for the legislative elections to maintain an affiliation to another party. He's backed off on that a little bit, but he's very interested in transforming um, the political map. So just two quick last comments on, um, on the, the politics of the legislative elections. You might ask, well, what about Marine Le Pen's Front National Party? Um, they're currently polling to, to pull in somewhere between 15 and 25 seats in, uh, in Parliament, that doesn't sound like a lot in relation to a parliamentary majority, but it's more than the FN would have ever had. Um, another emergent force is uh, a sort of reborn Communist Party 
French Communist Party under the leadership of, uh, of Mélenchon. This is a party called France Insoumise. They're polling around uh, somewhere like 10 to, to 15 uh, seats in parliament. So it's pretty clear that there's a, there's a sort of continuity in relation to the center uh, that Macron embodies. Okay, so very quickly then, uh, where does this character come from? What does he represent? Who is he? What is, this is the question that the French are asking themselves right now. What is Macronism? Um, what in his, and this is where you, there's a particular kind of tea leaf reading that happens in French politics, which is what did he study? With whom did he work? What books interest him? What political currents interest him? And so that I think the key things that you need to know about, about Macron in this regard, and maybe we can come back to this in the discussion for a little more detail, but I'll just go quickly, is that in a first instance, he, he did a DEA, Diplôme d'études approfondies, in uh, philosophy with Étienne Balibar. Uh, people talk a lot about the fact that he subsequently worked with Paul Ricoeur, but Balibar is a very well-known figure in, in uh, politics, I mean, in the study of politics. Um, it's not often mentioned. Interesting note, Balibar says that he doesn't remember Emmanuel Macron, right? So it's, it's a sort of one-way recognition. Um, but more, more significantly is the fact that um, as a student writing a dissertation at Sciences Po, Emmanuel Macron became the editorial assistant for a philosopher named Paul Ricoeur. And Paul Ricoeur is, uh, just to give you a quick thumbnail sketch, a, uh, a thinker who often gets put in the same camp as somebody like Jürgen Habermas, uh, a, a sort of thinker of, of dialogue, of public space, of, uh, of a sort of humane liberalism. And, and liberalism here you have to understand not as a kind of, as an economic system, but really more as a, as a kind of political philosophy. And um, Macron names John Rawls as a key thinker. Um, as he does Amartya Sen, he sees the, the notion of justice as being absolutely central to the kind of liberalism that he embodies. And so the, the way that, that this gets uh, articulated in, in sort of the, the French public sphere is that Macron represents somebody who clearly comes from a, a background in international finance and banking, but believes that economies can only function within a, a context of fairly significant government intervention and regulation. Um, he believes strongly, following the thinking of Ricoeur and Rawls, in two kinds of equality, and I'll end with this. Um, equality under the law, so égalité des droits, right? Um, but also what they refer to, égalité réelle des chances. And this is basically the, the, the capacity of anybody in French society to have the same opportunity as somebody else to succeed. In other words, a kind of fair and open economic and, uh, and political system. And I can add some texture and nuance to this um, later if you'd like.
Yes, okay, so thanks uh, first of all for having me. I'm going to try to square the circle first of all to um, limit my remarks to the uh, 12 minutes. So I'm already locking eyes with uh, Travis here in the front row. So I'll resist my usual impulse to talk my audience into a coma without details of German politics. So I'll try to be brief. On the other hand, what I want to do is actually not get lost into uh, details of this French presidential election or um, the various aspects of the policies pursued by Macron, but actually provide context and perspective. And so what I want to do um, is first of all address in my opening remarks this, um, that some time ago certainly there was an important sense of urgency amongst many observers that after the election victory of Trump and the Brexit vote um, there was a rise of populist right movements in Western democracies and probably also a sense of urgency that there was a considerable threat and challenge to liberal and democratic uh, norms and also liberal international order. And now uh, that after the uh, Dutch uh, parliamentary election um, and especially after this election, um, the success of radical right parties has subsided somewhat. There's a sense of relief. So somehow that we can go back uh, to assuming again that European integration is uh, there to stay and that liberal democracy is accepted by the majority of the populace. So of course, this perspective is relevant because we are dealing with an actual uh, challenge and threat to liberal democratic uh, norms here. But at the same time, it's also somewhat narrow to focus our view on populist right parties. And what I want to do in my remark is to provide a bit of context and actually to speak about dynamics of change that we see in various Western democracies, including Germany and France, on which I'm going to focus somewhat, and that evolved um, over the past few decades and are certainly um, certain to continue into the future. And so uh, what do I want to talk about that? Um, well, first of all, uh, I think what we are uh, looking here in this election, also in several other elections in the recent past and probably also in the future, is a very important and also possibly transformative change in party political representation, party political conflict and competition that has started about in the 1990s and is ongoing. Um, especially in the last five to 10 years. And while a lot of uh, political science literature has been written about that, and I um, need to, again, resist my impulse to get lost into a lot of theory, broadly this could be summarized as a change of party politics from a traditional model of left-right politics to a new form of party political conflict and representation that is better characterized as a sort of mainstream versus challenger politics. And this is something that we've seen in, uh, certainly in the Brexit referendum, also in the French presidential election, and something that will also uh, play an important role in the German federal election in September. So what does that mean, this change from left-right to mainstream challenger of, uh, politics? Mostly three things. First of all, if we look at the mainstream parties, so the major parties, center-left and center-right, that we are used to looking at as the main competitors in the, um, in the voting system and that are most likely um, to, uh, to win elections and uh, to, to appoint prime ministers and chancellors, um, if we look at them in comparative perspective, what we can observe in the last 10, 20 years is first of all that generally speaking there is a decline in the relative share of the vote. So center-left and center-right parties um, win increasingly less um, percentages of the overall vote. And at the same time, there's also a development towards a certain degree of ideological convergence between the main parties. So if we look at social democrat or socialist parties on the left and then Christian democrat or conservative parties, actually the ideological differences between these parties become increasingly vague. Um, 
and almost undistinguishable. Um, secondly, if we look at party systems as a whole, so so to speak, take a bird's eye view on how party systems develop. Um, another um, tendency that we can observe in many European countries and political systems is an increased fragmentation of the party system. So we have an increased amount of parties competing in elections and for political office. Um, this is something that we even observe um, in a system that we uh, traditionally understood to be a two-party system, namely Britain, where there's now increasing, uh, well, at least a third competitor that needs to be taken serious for the way par political parties compete uh, with each other. And so if we look at uh, newly emerging parties that have uh, increased this number of parties competing for office, certainly um, a new phenomenon is the rise of all sorts of new, well, and now I need to utter this word, populist parties. And populism, of course, is a rather broad sort of summary term for a lot of very different parties that largely have in common that they mobilize against the established political class, against the elite and the existing set of policies and institutions. And at the same time, that is a very sort of broad summary term, and we need to acknowledge that populist parties emerge in very different uh, varieties and very different uh, ideological variations. So we have populist challenges both on the political left and on the political right, and sometimes even somewhere in between where it is actually hard to make sense of these old distinctions between left and right. And then finally, the third observation would be that political conflict, so what elections are won and lost on and what actually moves voters, um, apparently increase, uh, increasingly shifts from material and economic questions to cultural and social ones. So elections used to be won on issues of uh, taxes, the economy, investment, and so forth, pension, social policy. And increasingly, we see um, electoral campaigns where more cultural and social issues matter, so stuff like immigration, citizenship, and very broadly defined um, what the identity of, of the nation state and what of society should be. And that is a very uh, culturally defined question. And what we see here is uh, an increasingly a polarization between culturally progressive and more traditional and authoritarian parties. So these would be three um, core observations from the perspective of political science that we see happening in Western democracies. And this also plays out um, in the French presidential elections. I just want to briefly explain that for the examples of France and Germany. So as the first speaker uh, pointed out already, the runoff in the French presidential election was contested between two candidates that were not actually nominated by the two major parties that usually um, win presidential elections, so the Socialists and the Republicans. So that's um, a sort of match with the model as I described. Um, another observation would be that both the National Front Party and also the En Marche movement led by Macron are parties, of course, with very different uh, variations and various sorts of uh, different approaches, but still both are parties that promise change and present a challenge to the established political class and also existing policies. And then also, if we look at the French presidential election, um, the typical distinction and alignment between left and right has actually become more confused. It has become harder to distinguish between the classical right and left. Just a few examples, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left candidate, actually had a pretty hard time endorsing Macron uh, for the presidential election and was very hesitant and also um, calling for voters to resist the election of Le Pen. Um, then, of course, Macron sort of mixes rather left-wing progressive positions for an open society and multiculturalism with rather right-wing pro-business positions. 
And then finally, if we look at the ideological profile of the National Front themselves, certainly it's a right-wing nationalist authoritarian party in cultural terms, but one that is also um, a party that adopts more typically left-wing positions on social policy issues. So in that sense, the distinction between left and right becomes increasingly confused and less easy to distinguish. Um, if we look at Germany, we have similar developments. First of all, the decline of and uh, convergence of mainstream parties. So while Merkel um, is almost um, uh, yeah, certain to win the federal election after the regional election in North Rhine-Westphalia, of which you might have heard, so just about any political observer in Germany now expects Merkel to, to win in the September election after the important regional election in North Rhine-Westphalia that the CEO carries. Nevertheless, if we adopt a longer-term perspective, it's very sort of uh, striking to observe that the combined vote of the center-right CDU and the center-left SPD has declined over time. So these parties do no longer catch 80 or 90% of the vote, but probably 60 or 70% of the vote. And in ideological terms, they're increasingly similar. It is actually increasingly difficult to, uh, to distinguish the positions of both parties um, with regard to very clear-cut uh, positions. So with regard to the minimum wage or same-sex marriage or immigration, both parties have actually converged and worked together pretty harmoniously in a grand coalition that has now been set up for the second time uh, during the 12-year reign of Angela Merkel. So we observe this. The second would be fragmentation of the party system. Yes, that also takes place. We have uh, newcomers in the German party system. So in the 1990s, uh, the Green Party, um, then of course the Left Party as a sort of quasi-legacy from German unification, and more recently, Alternative for Germany. And that makes it harder to form majorities um, in the Bundestag to appoint um, a new chancellor, um, thereby forcing the two mainstream parties, SPD and CDU, into a grand coalition. And that becomes increasingly sort of locked into power and increases the incentive for populist challenges to sort of mobilize against this all-party consensus that is emerging here. And so if we look at the September election, I would also say that this is not about the traditional um, hard-hitting economic and material questions of taxes and pensions and uh, the economy and so forth. But I think mostly it will be about Germany locating its own uh, situation and position in the European Union and how to manage um, sort of the effect of its own weight and clout for the European Union with regard to its neighbors, um, to acknowledge its own responsibility for um, resolving the Eurozone crisis, also um, accepting its responsibility to provide solutions for the migrant crisis. And, um, so, and so we can certainly say that the uh, main uh, um, topics for the forthcoming election are uh, closely tied to uh, the European Union and the question whether Germany remains committed to that. Um, so to sort of summarize, uh, the September election is mostly one about the question um, whether Germany should uh, hold a, a course of continuity in the European Union and maintain its commitment to a sort of multilateralist approach or um, ask for a rupture. And of course, we know that German voters are pretty likely to opt for the first uh, of these two options. So in this sense, of course, different scenarios, but uh, in a way, similar developments. Why does that happen? So why do we see this change from left-right politics to mainstream challenger? First of all, there's a lot of literature about changes in voter orientations that happen towards more post-materialist issues. So uh, questions of social identity, of immigration, of what a society is defined by is increasingly important to people. Secondly, of course, European integration in the EU itself matters very much. 
It is simply the case that the European Union, through the single market and the single currency, has taken away a lot of uh, leeway and a lot of policy options from national policymakers. So it's become much more difficult for national leaders to promise dramatic changes in national domestic pol economic policy, simply because the EU provides a framework that increasingly limits the room of maneuver for national leaders. And I think if we look at France, certainly um, we are now looking at two successive failed presidencies, first by Sarkozy and then by Hollande. And both uh, the, the fact that both presidencies are seen as failed certainly has to do with the fact that both presidents struggled with um, well, uh, seeing through promised changes in a European context um, that are perceived by voters um, as credible. I see that Travis is um, asking me to conclude, and I will do that. So what does all of this mean? First of all, from an analytical point of view, certainly, again, I would um, appeal, I do this continuously to my students, and I would also appeal to this audience um, to not be too fixated on observing populist challengers and right-wing radical parties and whatever they do to Western and democracy and if they're successful or not, but actually do more to understand the sort of dynamics of change that we see in uh, various uh, Western democracies and European countries. And um, to also do, to be more careful to talk about crisis of democracy, so what we see are certainly changes and challenges, not necessarily yet a crisis. Um, the second thing would be, from a political point of view, um, certainly political conflict is changing, and we can summarize this um, as describing as a conflict between openness and closure. So certainly what we have here is a new kind of polarization between progressive liberalism, so I would connect to John Rawls and Habermas, certainly as proponents of this kind of political uh, philosophy on the one hand, and on the other hand, a new form of protectionism that is defined both in economic and cultural terms. So we're starting to talk about this term of cultural protectionism, so actually closure of national system, that appears to be the main political question um, in the current period. And so for policymakers, what is here to do certainly is to make the case for European integration. It's become more conflictual. Conflict will not go away. I think it can also not be removed in a managerial um, manner, but needs to be addressed in public discourse and public debate, which is um, a very difficult and very challenging task for policy national leaders and policymakers which, however, needs to be taken on. And certainly the case for an open society and European integration still deserves uh, to be made. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sabine, <coughs> for organizing this event and for, for having me in this uh, important meeting. Right, if I have to summarize my impressions about the results of the last French elections, I would use perhaps uh, two French words for it. The first is uh, soulagement, which uh, means relief, and the second is espoir, which means hope. Probably you have guessed why I'm expressing relief at the results of these uh, elections. And uh, I'm sure everyone will guess that I'm talking about the relief that Marine Le Pen didn't win. Although it's a relief that I must be accompanied by a caveat, it's a relief that has a time limit of five years because the populism is not going to disappear overnight in Europe. We all know this and it very much depends on what the new French president will do to see whether in five years' time this populism, if not disappear, 
at least will have receded. So I will refer, I'm not, in any case, I'm not going to talk about what could have happened and thanks God didn't happen. Or thanks, not God, thanks to the <laughs> French voters. Um, I'm going to talk about what may happen now with Emmanuel Macron as president uh, in terms of the uh, consequences for the European Union. And here my word is hope because to start Emmanuel Macron has a merit and his merit is not only not to be Marine Le Pen. In addition to that, he has another merit, who is the first candidate to the French election who is openly and unequivocally pro-European. It doesn't mean that other European leaders are not pro-European, but they were so discreet about it, as if they feared that showing their cards as strongly in favor of European integration could cost them votes or could make them unpopular. This is the French. Uh, uh, the first French president, who is unashamedly and openly pro-European. And this is, I will not stress it enough, a game changer. This is a fundamental change. And it is a fundamental change because <clears throat> when I talk about the possible effects of the Macron uh, presidency in the European Union, I will refer to two things. One is the policies, of course, but the other one, which I believe is crucial, is rhetoric about the European Union. And as an active official of the European Union, I can tell you that one of the most frustrating things in the European Union is that nobody in the European political class openly defends the European Union. Even those who are actually pro-European, they don't say it. They just take Europe for granted. And in their political rhetoric, Europe is always taken for granted. And the merits of the European Union that have provided for 60 years of peace, prosperity, and freedom in Europe, they are not recognized by everybody. Just take for granted. This is as if that had been there all the time, as if nobody had had to fight to get to that situation in the first place. Emmanuel Macron is the first politician who is changing this. And that alone is an incredible uh, uh, um, achievement. I can tell you that uh, my everyday practice in the European Commission shows the truth of this assert that we have coined some time ago, that European politicians tend to nationalize the success and Europeanize the failure. That means that Europe is never recognized as having done something positive. All the goodies that arrive to the population is due to their own uh, work as national politicians, but Europe is traditionally the ideal scapegoat for all politicians in Europe. This has been so for many years, and if the political class in Europe has been repeating this all the time, if they have been telling the European people that everything is good comes from them and everything bad comes from Brussels, little wonder that they have fundamentally contributed to the race of populism and Europe's skepticism in Europe. And there comes Emmanuel Macron and he changes that and he says, Europe is good, the future of France will be so much better if we work to promote the ideal of the European integration. This is a huge change already before knowing whether he's going to deliver or not, 
This is a game changer already. So this is the first thing I want to underline. But then let's go to politics. So what are his politics on Europe? In the uh, campaign, he has been quite discreet. He has not been particularly specific or clear. To know what he thinks about Europe, I'm going to use two sources. The first source is his inauguration speech. In his inauguration speech, he said about the European Union something very short, but, but very meaningful. He said that Europe or the European Union must be refondé et relancé, which means refounded and relaunched. So he is defending the European Union, but he's not defending the status quo. And that, for a French politician, is also an important change. France has been in the European Union a major player, but a conservative one, rather prudent and rather reticent to, to change the status quo. And now Emmanuel Macron comes in favor of Europe, but not the status quo Europe, but a fundamentally refounded and relaunched Europe. So he is becoming or presenting himself as a powerhouse for European reform. This is entirely new. Let's, let's say it absolutely clear. At the same time, then the question is that, uh, so this is his inauguration speech. Where can we trace back the blueprint of Emmanuel Macron on the European integration? Very meaningfully, all the sources, apart from his inauguration speech that was so short but so meaningful on this, we have to go to Berlin, to the Humboldt University, the 10th of January this year. There, he had a speech, a lecture, in which he actually presented his blueprint for the European Union. And the first element that we should underline of that speech was that the place he chose, it was Germany, not by chance, because his uh, first political message was to say Europe works when the Franco-German alliance works. This alliance has been blocked for the last 10 or even perhaps 20 years. If we want Europe to be reformed and to work, we have to start by the basis, which is to relaunch the Franco-German cooperation on the further integration of Europe. So he went to Germany to have this message. And he already presented his basic ideas for what is the relaunching of the Franco-German alliance on the European Union. He basically had a critical view of what the two countries, in his view, are not doing well. He was self-critical with France and said, if we want to re-cooperate the trust of Germany, we have to do two things that France hasn't done over the last 10 to 20 years. First of all, be a reliable um, uh, partner in terms of fiscal discipline, and secondly, be able to reform, which is what Germany has been criticized, criticizing France for. At the same time, he's criticizing Germany and saying, but you, Germany, have to do your homework in terms of what I've been criticizing you for, which is you have been too rigid on fiscal discipline, and you have been too unsympathetic on the effects of the fiscal discipline in certain economies, particularly of Southern Europe. So the message from Macron to Germany was, let's build the alliance, and for that, both of us have to do our homework, and if we do it, 
we are going to relaunch this Franco-German axis that is the basis, has always been, of the European Union. Next question is that, can he deliver this? I think that I'm optimistic about it. On the German side, there, there has been some gestures in her typical, extremely discreet style by Angela Merkel saying, or hinting at, well, if the French do their, hum, their, their homework, we will deliver too. And the big question is that, will Emmanuel Macron deliver? Is he going to have a parliamentary majority? We'll see. Chances are he will have it. But then the, the real test will come after he's got a, a majority in the French parliament. And that will be whether he has the personal and political clout to impose reform on a country which has long tradition of resisting reform. As soon as he starts cutting down government expenditure, the French people will go on the streets. What's going to happen? Is he going to have the political clout to go ahead? That's the big question mark about it. I don't know if he will do it, but what I personally think is that if he, hasn't, if he doesn't do it, probably nobody else will do it now in France. And then, well, what is it that he wants over and beyond rebuilding the Franco-German axis? If we revisit this lecture that he gave at the Humboldt University in, in, um, in March, he's basically proposing, first of all, a change of methodology. The change of methodology he is proposing to relaunch Europe and to refound it, it can be re re summarized in three issues. First of all, choose the right issues. Europe, it is true, I must recognize it, working in the house, that sometimes, what are you working on? We are working on so many things at a time that we kind of lose focus sometimes. He wants to recover focus and discuss this focus on a few issues with everybody. Secondly, and this is extremely important, he wants to present the ideas for change in a simple document. Stop these ideas of modifying the treaties of the European Union and distributing a text of a new treaty with 200 pages that are accessible only to well-trained lawyers. This is killing Europe because it gives the impression that the whole European project is carried out by just an elite of insiders. He wants to turn this discussion on the future of Europe something accessible to everybody. So forget legal text, kill legal text, just discuss with citizens on the basis of extremely simple papers that everyone can understand. You might think that this is so obvious. Well, it is so obvious, it has actually never been done clearly. And the third, which is that he proposes an advanced in the time's up, just then, well, I'm, I'm finalizing. Um, and the third element of his methodology is basically what, you know, in the community jargon has long been called the Europe, the geometry variable, the variable geometry or the multi-speed Europe, whatever you call it. He's basically saying, we need to do this job at least among the willing. The unwilling can stay behind. I'm fine with that. I don't need them if they don't want to. If they don't want to join in this for the European integration, stay behind, but don't block us. Let us do this for those who are willing. And, uh, and then just, I know, finalize. And then what are the issues that he's proposing for debate? 
he's proposing to focus this uh, EU action, including, if necessary, after the papers have been agreed, a possible modification of the treaties. He's proposing to concentrate, but this is just his proposal to start discussing five areas, and I shut up after this. <laughs> Immigration policy, internal and external security, which includes fight against terrorism and defense, governance of the euro, and then sustainable development, basically fight against climate change, and the last, a digital, a digital, digital revolution. So how to do, basically, a European Google. I will shut up here.